What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, here to lead us into the 165th episode of Armchair Producers. I am here, as always, joined by the talent, the beauty, the delight of the podcast, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy, and thank you for joining me for 165 of these. Must be over 200 if you count the old show. It's definitely over 200 at this point with the with the GNT podcast. Um, you know, I'm going to see if I can just quickly look at that. Um, uh, and thank you to all 6,000 the uh, the, uh, the the bot army who support us every week. Um, uh, and if you, you fan the show and you listen to it, thank you very much yeah. for downloading and subscribing. I have no idea why you listen, but hey. I think we te- we technically qualify as um, blue white uh, blue noise, so we, we <laughs> blue noise right into a strange stupor. Maybe we should um, maybe we should get a blue check mark of Elon just to make sure we match our blue noise. You know, <laughs> um, what a mess that is. You you're a Twitter person, aren't you? I I have Twitter. I I use it for the podcast. And occasionally I'll look at it for sporting things like pro wrestling stuff, but that's, I, I wouldn't exactly say that I'm a talent at Twitter. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's any talent. I think any talent that was involved in Twitter has now been fired. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got a packed show for you this week. We're going to be yeah. talking about. Uh, George's selection for the chain movie before the devil knows you're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both managed to watch Blockbuster, a couple of yep. episodes of that at least. So mm-hmm. I've watched three episodes, but I think you get the idea. Yeah. Um, and of course, the big release of a week, the new Marvel film, Black yes, two, yes. uh, Wakanda Forever, and some other sit- some other stuff. If we find the time, along with our world famous uh, YouTube breaking uh, sponsor of the week, yes. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, with the sponsor of the week every week, use hashtag no discount at checkout for zero. That's zero percent discount at checkout. Um, right, should we get straight into it? Let's crack on. All right. So last week we talked about the impactful 1964 um, The Pawnbroker by Sidney Lumet. And it was my... It was my duty, my privilege to pick the next link in the change. And I followed Sidney Lumet to his final film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Now, if you're going to go out on a film, you know, this is the one you want to go out on. It's a it's a pretty good final film, really. I mean, again, it's very impactful. Um, Have you seen I think it might be his best work. It might be the best thing he ever did. Have you seen this before? I have seen this before. It's been a, been oh. a long time, though. So this mm-hmm. came out in 2007. I must have seen mm-hmm. it shortly after it came out. So it's probably been 10, 12 years since I've seen it. And mm-hmm. um, I remembered parts of it. I remember the basic gist. Um, yeah. The twists went too twisty for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I was just stunned again at, like, the, the talent on display here and mm-hmm. the masterful control 
that Lumet has over his pieces on his chessboard he's playing with here. It's like it's watching a master at work. So many filmmakers in their later years sort of fade away into self-indulgence or just jobs for hire. Yeah. This Spielberg syndrome, he gets by on his reputation. Yeah. Spielberg, I can do whatever the fuck I want. Who cares if it's crap? Um, You know, uh, or very, very few of them go out on top. Yeah. If they do, they're like someone like Tarantino who's like, I'm doing 10 and I'm done. Um, But very few have a career as long as Sidney Lumet. Oh, is it Lumet or Lumet? I'm okay with Lumet. Um, yeah, Lumet sounds classier. <laughs> um, and work with stuff like the, the Pawnbroker, which is obscure, but 12 Angry Men, Serpico, mm-hmm. Dog Day Afternoon, and mm-hmm. then, you know, then Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is your last film, and nobody went and saw it. Yeah, no, it was it was dead in the water. Um, but let, before we go too far ahead, it's when two brothers organise the robbery of their parents' jewellery store, the job goes horribly wrong, triggering a series of events that send them, their father, and one brother's wife barreling towards a shattering climax. That is a very fair way of summing up this movie, which is a non-linear told story. We see things out of sequence. We cut back and forwards through time, seeing similar scenario, uh, the same scene from different points of view, different perspectives. And there was a period where that became quite a popular kind of thing. And um, 2007 wasn't it. <laughs> no, it was not. Um, but it does it really well here to just do exactly what it's supposed to do. And that is inform us on the characters more and tell us more about who they really are, not who, who they're seen in all of the scenes where we're just following a story. We are following the people in the story. The story is almost incidental to the journey that the characters are on themselves, the emotional and spiritual journey that they, that they go on from middle to start to end, depending on how you want to look at it. In a way, I found this actually a really interesting comparison piece the last week because mm-hmm. it's like he was playing around with some of the stuff in Pawnbroker last week that mm. we saw put to use in a more uh, measured and skillful way here. Mm-hmm. So there was those really weird, sharp cuts that we were talking about last week, sort of one-frame cuts between the face of a pawnbroker and, and yeah. his flashbacks from, from the Holocaust, um, which seemed really kind of edgy and... So I want an experimental 60s kind of filmmaking. It yeah. didn't, it felt a little bit jarring while at the same time as you kind of got what he was going for. It didn't quite, it felt out of place a little bit. Um, but the chop and changey kind of thing that he did here, where we, as you said, you jump around the narrative back and mm-hmm. forwards and see it almost Pulp Fiction esque. Yeah. Um, is, but it doesn't, it never feels like he's aping Tarantino. No, like, that was a popular. You were hinting it was a popular thing in the nineties that people started mm-hmm. doing it after Tarantino did it in Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction. If, yeah. if, I think of a film like Go, which we watched in the show a while ago, which yeah. is a perfectly cromulent film, but it feels derivative. This yeah. never feels derivative, and it doesn't evoke the kind of flashbacky, uh, stylized way that Tarantino mm-hmm. did it. But it, it, it's it, as you said, it, it's a completely different beast. But it, it, I found myself going. Oh, so he he was playing around about the sixties, but by the early mid two thousands, he kind of got that just right. Yeah, so yeah, really, really works, um, and it really drives the story forward nicely in this film. 
Mm-hmm. And driving that story forward, we've got one hell of a cast. We talked about it before. You've got the 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 lost talent, the brilliant Philip Seymour Hoffman. You've got the great Ethan Hawke, Albert Finney, rest his soul, fantastic actor, Marissa Tomei, a little cameo from Michael Shannon. It's these guys just really firing on all cylinders in all of their um, scenes. They work incredibly well together. Their performances juxtapose each other and the silences tell as much story as the brutal kind of laser accurate evisceration that the wordings of each of their characters, particularly Philip Seymour Hoffman's Andy and Albert Finney's Charles use to kind of knock their, they, they barely even kind of feel like a family, but rivals and uh, combatants. It feels like they're constantly just <clears throat> slamming that person down with every word being meticulously chosen to elicit a reaction and response or an effect of some description. It's it's one of the better active films you'll see around the place. Um, mm. Sidney Lumet himself said there's a particular scene in the car uh, between um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and his wife, played by Marissa Tomei, after mm. a funeral where he just explodes mm. in the car in, in a fit of rage. Not at her, but just, I guess at his, at his dad, wife, his situation, his dad. Um, and... Sidney Lumet was, was a quote in the um, in trivia here on IMDb, but he considered it some of the, the best acting he'd ever seen. Um, mm. And from someone of his stature and, yeah. you know, tenure of career, that's yeah. quite a statement. Um, yeah. the, the, the casting's outstandingly perfect. Like, So mm. we have um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is a payroll officer for a real estate agent. We mm. have that opening sex scene, which is completely devoid of any passion or intimacy or warmth it's it's so sterile it's actually i found myself going it's an odd way to open a film with a sex scene yeah um but it it really told us i mean that was a great brilliant way to start to establish the character yeah of of am phil Seymour hoppins andy uh we learned that he is um, his payroll officer he's in financial trouble he's Mm -hmm. stealing from his employer Mm-hmm. Later, we learn he's actually an addict as well. He regularly mm-hmm. visits a drug dealer and shoots up heroin uh, at his house, as well as doing cocaine at various times. And I found that actually kind of a chilling, um, chilling impression sort of thing. Considering that's that's how Philip Seymour Hoffman himself died was of yeah. uh, heroin intoxication. Um, and I mean, who knew? I didn't know. He, I didn't even know he's an addict. Like, I mean, sometimes you know if. Um, Lindsay Lohan, <laughs> you know, uh, or someone like that. You go, well, that's what she did. Yeah. Uh, Robert's one of the time, Robert Downey Jr. got caught driving around with bugs, fake bugs crawling under his skin. You're like, well, that's the kind of thing that Robert Downey Jr. was doing at the time. Yeah. But, you know, you never heard anything. At least I never heard of that in being a drug addict. And so yeah. when you see him in those scenes where he's shooting up heroin, you're like, ooh, okay, um, that, that, yeah. that's a little too close to home. Yeah. Um, but apparently he was clean at the time mm. and only relapsed uh, a few years after this, and mm. after which he died. Mm. Um, but he is the cold, calculating mastermind of this scenario. Mm. He recruits his younger brother, Ethan Hawke, Hank, who mm-hmm. is 
again, one of the one of the better Ethan Hawke does not get enough credit. No, I mean, people really think of Ethan Hawke and they think Teen Idol. They think the reality bites, right? How beautiful he was in the nineties. Yeah. He was he, a talent from that from reality bites onwards. He's always he was one of the more enjoyable elements of Moon Knight. Um he is he always brings it wherever, whichever production he comes into. Like um, we both really liked, uh, was it Predestination? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's a great film. Oh, and, yeah. and we're talking about things. Forget, people forget he was in Training Day. Like it was a yeah. big film, or yeah. they haven't seen them. But the sun, yeah, before after sunset, um, the uh, the Purge films. He was in the first one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy can seriously go when he needs to go as an actor. He needs to go in this film and he brings it because he plays oh, yeah. a he, he is a loser. Hank is a loser. Mm-hmm. He's pathetic. And um, my goodness, he inhabits the character beautifully. He really does come across as somebody who's got no clue what he's doing and is mm-hmm. completely put upon by his older, more established brother, Andy. Mm-hmm. He is an ex-wife. He's behind in his child support to his ex-wife. You really get the impression he's he's down on his luck when it comes to money, and mm. then when Philip C. Andy brings him this uh, proposal to rob um, a jewelry store um, that what tends to be their parents' jewelry store, mm. uh, he really isn't in a position to refuse. Mm. Um, and and quite a sideways situation, but also sorry your your insistence that Andy just seems to know exactly where to hit his brother to make him mm. do what he wants. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The the manipulation of just him kind of giving him some basic, very generic, almost kind of horoscope broad strokes of what this what his plan is. It's so like, cool, sounds good. Tell me, tell me more. So I'm like, oh no, you you got to sign on, otherwise uh, otherwise you don't get anything else. So I'm like, if and if Hank thought about it, it's like, well, what's it, what's his brother going to fucking do if he? does hear and then say no he's gonna call him a, a bitch like he does later on in the movie <laughs> is he actually gonna call the police on him he's, he's got he's done nothing wrong <laughs> it's also a very it's a classic um sales tactic right like you know like oh you, you know you, you, i could i've got this amazing deal but you know you have to you know put a down payment before you can know what it is right yeah, um, yeah. bait and switch <laughs> it's it's just He's, oh, but the, the, of course, is he? Yeah, he's, he's a cold, calculating, manipulative person. And I guess the funny thing is that what I think it does it so skillful is, I guess, ostensibly, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this film is the bad guy. Mm. Um, but you start to feel, I wouldn't say I go so far as you feel empathy for the bad guy, he's not Thanos esque, where you can sort of go, he has a point, um, <laughs> but at the same time. You can start to understand some of the psychology of why he is the way he is when his dad sits down next to him. Is at, at a point in the film where Albert Finney playing his father, um, mm. uh, what's his dad's name? Charles sits Charles. down and, and and says, "Look, I'm sorry. I never talked about my feelings. I was never that kind of dad. I could never be the dad you wanted me to be." Mm. And you start to instead of just being evil for evil's sake, you start to put together some of the pieces about why he's that way mm. and why he can be so calculating about uh, committing a crime against his parents. Mm, it was one of the things that, because um, I watched it with my girlfriend and we both agreed that 
none of the characters in this movie are actually nice. They're all horrible in their own way. Many, many variations of that, that word. Um, Andy is manipulative, cruel, calculating, he's oily, he's, he's opportunistic. There's method to why he chooses each step of the journey that we witness to it. But there's not really any redeeming qualities to him. Hank is a loser, like you said, and he he makes bad choices. And the only point of the movie where you feel like, oh, he's actually learned something is where he goes, what's to stop him from asking, keep coming back and asking for more? Is it like, finally, he's actually shown a modicum of intelligence. And Charles is shown to be a horrible man, a horrible father. And especially how it ends. My God, we we ended up kind of going, do you think that Charles went after Hank? After the movie ran? What? Yeah, it, not, not even even Marissa Tomei's character, uh, Gina. She doesn't have a great, a great deal of redeeming characters. He's probably the closest thing to, you know, a nice character in the film. I mean, maybe the mother... Maybe, but you know, uh, Gina cheats on husband and seems to be very unapologetic about it. It's like, okay, you're you're not a nice person then. So it's it, in that regard, it's kind of a hard movie to watch because there's no one to kind of put your faith in or kind of go, yes, that's that's the one I want to win the day. They all deserve what they get. <laughs> Which I think is what, this, again, come back to, uh, I think the real skill in making this such an entertaining picture is. I think often you do need a, a likable character in a film to actually kind of find your way into the story and, and be, can be bothered watching two hours of it. Mm. Um, and you're right, these are despicable characters, but um, I still enjoyed watching it. I couldn't wait to see what happened to them all. I thought I remember what happened at the end, but I was mm. still absolutely glued to the screen mm. to watch what happened at the end. And I think the difference here is what I was talking about is you get some sense of understanding about mm. where they're coming from. Mm. Um, but also you feel different ways about different people. So you do feel some sort of contempt towards Andy, for example, for being the things he's getting up to, the things he gets up to in a film. And as you said, just being a general prick. Mm. Um, whereas Hank... He's also, as you said, very clearly not a nice guy. He's a loser. He's pathetic. He makes horrible decisions. And he's a fucking moron. Just yeah. as a... But I don't think you feel contempt. I don't know. I felt contempt for Hank. I felt pity. You can pity Hank. You almost pity him. And he's a pitiful character. And yeah, you can't, it's, it's, hard it's, to it's, hate someone who's a pity character is the thing. And that's what makes him kind of... You, it's not nice to watch him because... He doesn't really want to change because if he did, he'd fucking learn a lesson. And at every step, he doesn't learn a lesson until it's basically too late. And I, I, said, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't experience this feeling that I, was, I wasn't enjoying watching these people. Mm. Uh, I guess that thought never crossed my mind just because it was just, the story was just being told so skillfully. Mm. And mm. it was like a comedy of errors almost, really. Um, you know, these people around uh, every possible way to fuck up 
what should have been a fairly straightforward crime. I don't know. I don't commit a lot of crimes, at least not recently. Um, <laughs> um, but it, it should have been it, it should sort of a sell the crime at the start is it shouldn't be too hard to do this, but mm. make it hard. Um, that's, so, that's, that's the uh, thing is the, the setup for this whole story is two brothers try and uh, commit a theft on their parents' jewellery store. That sounds like the concept for a comedy movie. And this just goes, nope. <laughs> um, and the way the story just builds and builds and builds, and it's just like, oh, it's almost, it, it ratchets you up and it ratchets it up and it ratchets it up and it just gets hard enough. And I reckon one more turn of a crank, it would have been, okay, I think this is a bit much and I'm out. But mm -hmm. it just turned it just up enough. So without giving away too many spoilers, we have the crime going wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, which you know, they do not get anything from the robbery apart from trouble. Yep. Um, Andy and Hank are apoplectic about the fact that the crime has gone wrong and mm -hmm. something horrible has happened to someone. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes it worse is that Charles is determined to get to the bottom of why this crime happened and who committed it and mm -hmm. to have now got their father chasing their tail at mm -hmm. the same time as... Hank just wasn't as careful after a crime as he could have been, and they weren't able to get away as clean as they they thought they would have been. Um, and he wasn't as careful before the crime was committed, and who he spoke to and who he was seen by in preparation for a crime. I'm trying to be very vague here, so mm -hmm. if I think I, I think I'm detecting it from you, um, as as you would definitely get from me, but this is something I would recommend people in the yes. audience actually watch if you have absolutely. The the opportunity. Um, and then it's just after that, there's the <laughs> the appearance of Michael Shannon's character to mm -hmm. just to add a, another, you know, another layer of tension to another problem. And it's like another problem and another problem and another problem. Mm -hmm. And then the blow off. Did you find it satisfying or did you find it horrifying? I found it nullifying purely because the, this story is incredibly Shakespeare tragedy. And the so like the, the way that it all ends, basically, you know that that's how it's going to end from the from the start. You once you've introduced to the characters, you pretty much know. Yep, this is their fate. This is their fate. This is their fate. This is their fate. The journey is the interesting part for me, and so it was a very satisfying end in the regard that. Even though, as a storyteller, as someone who watches a lot of movies and TV shows, I kind of knew what the end result was going to be. The fucking journey that Sidney Lumet and their actors take me on to get there is beautiful. So it was incredibly appealing on that regard because rather than going, oh, they didn't surprise me, is it like, yes, he got exactly what I fucking knew he was going to get and it feels fucking good. There was some satisfaction in the blow-up. Yeah. I mean, you hinted earlier that um, we do learn the fate of Andy, but mm. we do not learn the fate of Hank. What did you think of that creative choice? I... I like that they left it ambiguous overall, but I feel like I don't know how... Oh, 
how else it could have ended because the only other way that I feel would have been good. I don't think that it would have been a situation of father versus son. If the story was to kind of continue to its true full end, I think it would have been the authorities catching up with Hank. That makes the most sense for me because of the relationship between Charles and Andy came to a head and ended how it should end for the characters that we are presented with. Um, the relationship between Charles and Hank was a very, very different relationship as part of the antagonistic relationship between all three of the men in the family. So I, I can't see that jump of a confrontation between Charles and Hank. I can see it just being because of the mistakes that Hank made, the authorities catch him. And that would be the best result because maybe he would finally learn his fucking lesson and pay the price. Everything else, chef's kiss. I, I think you're right. I, I had I, I liked it um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, it kind of mm. reminded me of some ways almost the Sopranos. I mean, that, 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 that final scene where it fades to black and it kind of leaves you blue yep. balls like, what happened? What happened? What happened? Um, <laughs> And you know, there are some people I know who really, really don't like that 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 they mm -hmm. made that choice in the show, but yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, um I just want to give a shout out here to the writer. We talked mm -hmm. a little about her last week. It is Kelly Masterson, is the mm -hmm. is the sole credited writer. I'm guessing Sydney Lumet might have done some bits and pieces here because apparently they cut parts of the story out, but he did mm -hmm. not get a writing credit. And what a piece of work for a, a young writer, I'm assuming. I'm yeah, assuming. he's young. She hasn't like done a great deal of work. Stuff. Yeah, um, uh, maybe she's not quite so young. Apparently, she's working in Broadway in 1987. But for a uh, a, a lesser known writer, I mean, Smith and Snowpiercer—that's a very decent couple of credits on your resume. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Uh, I just thought this was beautifully written as well as I don't want to give all the credit to Sydney Lumet, the late uh, great mm -hmm. Sydney Lumet, but uh, I thought the writer mm -hmm. should be called out as well because. She Absolutely. built this, this this beautiful stage and these amazing characters, um, and it's it's almost like you know um, it's almost like falling dominoes, right? You, it's, it's, if one domino and you sort of at all one lie, and you know if you people have uh, if you've ever been around people like that, you have to tell a lie on top of a lie to cover up a lie, um, and they build these incredibly complex webs to sort of cover up from the one immoral thing we've done to start with. Mm. Um, it, it, I was just stunned at how good this film was. Like, I was watching it actually on my computer when I was working. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a true sponsorship. <laughs> Mich Michelle was sitting on her computer doing some work and she couldn't even see it, but she was like following it like a radio play and was absolutely mm. entranced by what was happening. I think it says something about the quality of a film when that happens. That's it. That's it. And, um, you know, we talked about it um, briefly at, at the start, like the importance of the words that are being chosen by Andy and Charles to, to hurt the people that they're talking to, because they never have any comforting conversations. It's always to hurt. But at the same time, the silences in between, just letting the scene play out and letting the actors and the characters just feel those emotions and calculate what their next move is those silences are so poignant that 
<laughs> it, I can see why it would still be highly engaging for Michelle, who's just listening to it, because th those those silences tell volumes. Um, just the the simplicity of um, Charles and Andy in the garden after the wake, and they they're not even looking at each other; they're looking in completely different directions, just having this very intense conversation. But never once does does one even try to to catch the others eye. They just say something. They just say a statement. They say a feeling that they're feeling right now, and they let it just sit. And the silence goes on for uncomfortable amounts of times. Even if it's only like five seconds or ten seconds, it feels deep and rich and thick, like a, like it's just like everyone knows what's going to happen next. Just get to it. Nope, you're going to wait. One, two, three, four, five. Now we go. Now you are released from the from the silence. It's impressive, genuinely impressive. Um, it's I think sometimes what is not said is sometimes important as what is said. It's oh. like comedy. You know, the, the magic of comedy is timing. Um, and I, I think this film just nailed it. I, I um, it's uh, did you ever? Make they make you feel like, man, why did I not see this earlier? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I don't know. I don't know how or why this slipped my. Because uh, two thousand seven, I was watching pretty much as much as I could, and yet this passed me by. I'm glad I was. I'm glad that I took the opportunity to to watch it now because it's. What? Wait, me think is when you talk about the painting of great directors, you don't hear Sidney Lumet talked about that much. No, while he was alive, he was now recognized. Oh, he's a great director. The way people talk about people's careers, you know, you don't hear him talked about in the pantheon of people like Scorsese or Spielberg mm. or you know Orson Welles and those sort of characters, John Huston, Billy Wilder. But I think looking in the last couple of films we've seen in the last uh, week and these are his lesser known works, mm -hmm. not his great celebrated works. He's, um, I almost feel like I want to go and get a box set of his work or something and just go yeah. back. Yeah, go uh, it. the same because he's a master. Yeah, starting off with 12 Angry Men, just one of the best movies ever made, just looking at pure metrics, one of the best movies ever made. And then work working on things like it was Sepico and Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. And all of these things that everyone, anyone who's ever studied cinemas, they know these movies. Like, yeah, it's all from the same fucking guy. <laughs> and you're not talking about him? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but good choice. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, we had a good run of late, really, apart from uh, Dreamcatcher. Mm. So you have the keys, my friend, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. No, I have the keys. And I, let me just give you a taste, though. Okay. This is okay. not what we're going to watch. Okay. This is what we could have watched. I'm now going to share my screen here, and we're going to have a look at what we could have been watching this week. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Magic is fit. Two. One. 
What did I just watch? So that is <laughs> Pen and Teller get killed. Um, this is a for people who listen to the podcast later, look it up on the on YouTube. Pen and Teller get killed trailer. You can see it, and it only goes for a minute. This is a real movie we can really link to, um, but um, uh, unfortunately for all, and you can get it online for free. It's available for free. I'm sorry, that's too expensive for, for that movie. If, if anyone's curious, the link would have been Leonardo Chimino, who played William via the, uh, the fence, the oh, yeah. fence. Um, uh, he was in that film. But we, I've taken mercy on both of them. Thank us, you. And we are not going to watch Penn and Teller get killed. As amusing as that may have been, and I quite like that. What, what are we going to watch? We, we're going to follow Amy Ryan. Uh, who plays the um, character she played? Uh, played Martha. Oh, yeah. So that was um, uh, uh, Hank's ex wife. And she was in the. This is a film I should have seen but has never seen. The 2014 much lauded Academy Award winning oh, Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, the one that Michael Keaton won his Oscar for. Mm. Um, uh, and now it's a very weird movie directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iratu. I'm sure I got that wrong. And I'll get a lesson after this show is over from Michelle about how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, a fading actor best known for his portrayal of a popular superhero attempts to mount a comeback by appearing in a Broadway play. As opening night approaches, his attempts to become more altruistic, rebuild his career and reconnect with friends and family prove more difficult than expected. Mm -hmm. it, I've seen bits of it. It's pretty fucking weird. But um, it's highly lauded. This is, yeah, this, I mean, this is a di directed by um, Alejandro Inaratu, and he's, you know, made some of the most um, unusual, charismatic, in a weird, fucked up way, movies in a long time. Um, Amos Peros, 21 Grams, Nine Lives, um, Beautiful. Uh, this he did a little movie that a few people were heard of called The Revenant. It's you know there, there's a lot of talent in this movie. Uh, I I may have difficulty just pure, purely. By... Is, I think you'll be okay to get out of this. We've got Michael Keaton, of course, Academy Award winner, Zach Galifianakis, Edward Norton, Andrea Riseborough, Emma Stone, Naomi Watts. Uh, just to mention a few, yeah. uh, not to, of course, the director's done all sorts of bizzo yeah. as well around the place. So I think you'll be okay to find something new to watch. Not definitely going to uh, have decision paralysis right there. You're going to be going back to uh, Stephen Dorff or whatever it was you got us out of. <laughs>
Um, so that's us next week. Will be uh, it's on. If you're curious and you're in Australia, it is available on Prime. It is available on Disney. I'm sure you can find it various outlets overseas if you want to watch it. There you go. Fantastic stuff. Now we uh, are going to be talking about a faded superhero or actor who played a superhero next week. But this week we are talking. We go on to. Hey, well, let's go on the big one, the one that people want to hear about, Black Panther, yes. Wakanda Forever. Hashtag Black Panther 2, hashtag Wakanda Forever, all of that hand gestures. And there are plenty of uh, symbols for a uh, rallying nation in this movie, are there not? Uh, yeah, it's all the, the bizzo and the, mm. the fancy handshakes. Mm-hmm. So the people of Wakanda fight to protect their home from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of King T'Challa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan Coogler is back directing. And um, writing. Letitia Wright, and writing as well. Uh, Letitia Wright is back as Shuri. Lupita Nyong'o as Nakia. Uh, Danai Gurira as Okoye. Winston Duke as M'Baku. Angela Bassett as Ramonda. Mm-hmm. Martin Freeman as Everett mm-hmm. Ross. We've got Julia Louis-Dreyfus doing whatever it is she's doing for Marvel mm-hmm. right now. Uh, and a couple of new additions in here. Yes. Tenoch Huerta as Neymar mm-hmm. uh, and Dominique Fawn as Riri, who plays an important role in the story. Well, you may not be familiar with either of those mm-hmm. performers, um, but I think you'll be seeing a bit more of both of them, not just in the D- MCU, yes, specifically the MCU. Yeah, yeah. Um, where did you stand on the first one? Like, it, we got nominated for an Academy Award and made all the monies. Um, it was not an Academy Award <laughs> racing best picture. It was a solid movie and very important movie because of cultural representation in blockbuster movies. Um, it was a fine story with a compelling bad guy of Killmonger played by, played by Michael B. Jordan um, that they kind of did a little bit too good of a job, especially in retrospect. A lot of people are looking at the um, reasons for Killmonger, why he was doing everything. It's like, "Mm, he has more than one or two good points, though. (laughs) And so so it kind of muddies the water a little bit about, oh, who's who's, who's the hero, who's who's the the bad guy, all of that stuff. Um, I liked it. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm at a point where... Marvel aren't making movies anymore. They're making billion-dollar machines, and it was a very good billion-dollar machine with really good performances and a solid story. And I liked it. I remember being surprised. I think there were some fairly interesting um, uh, anti-Trump messages buried in that story, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, Chadwick Boseman, of course, burst onto the scene as an incredible T'Challa in... Um, Civil War wasn't he turned up in, but when getting his own film, he just owned it. Um, and the pairing of him with Letitia Wright was brilliant. Obviously, he and Ryan Coogler get along really well. Ryan Coogler also works a lot with Michael B. Jordan. Mm-hmm. If you're a fan of this movie and the last Black Panther, do check out Fruitvale Station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think Ryan Coogler might be his first I think film. It was, yeah. It stars Michael B. Jordan, and it's fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a bit like you. I was like, I liked it. I thought it was good. It was one of the it was in the upper echelon of top half mm. of Marvel's productions. It was, it was, I wasn't expecting much yeah. and I got a lot more than I was hoping for. And I liked the, the insertion of political messages. Yeah. I wasn't overly looking forward to this, I must say, because 
the trailers look crap, but then again, almost all Marvel trailers look crap. Yep. Also, as you sort of said, when was the last really shit hot Marvel film you saw? No Way Home is pretty good. Um, um, mm. So, uh, apart from that, it's been pretty, pretty lean time for MCU. I didn't like Thor very much. Mm-hmm. I thought Doctor Strange was average. And last year we had The Eternals, which was also average. Yeah. Shang-Chi was okay, you know. So, um, to get back to one of our sort of legacy characters from phase, mm-hmm. the first, you know, first you know, phase, phase of, of um, first couple of phases of, of, of EMCU is good, even though he's not really in it because obviously Chadwick Boseman tragically passed away. Yeah. Um, and I thought they handled that classily at the start of the film. They obviously had to start that mm-hmm. and a choice not to go with CGIing him in mm-hmm. or deep faking him was a good one because they could probably do that mm-hmm. now. Where do you stand? Should they recast him, though? Um, no, I, I think, mm, it kind of that kind of pulls into the story that I think Ryan Coogler wanted to tell with this. If Kevin Feige and the producers hadn't told them we need to do this, 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 and this, um, I think that it was right and proper to um, honour the actor's death and respect the death of that and allow for the mantle to be passed on. I think that was a good thing. The The mantle of Black Panther has been held by numerous people. It's even been held by um, bloody Captain America in the comics. So it's good that they may possibly be willing to take that idea and that notion of passing the mantle off to other people they their hand was somewhat forced in this scenario i think it was fine i think it was good i don't think that they should have um recast i don't think that would have been respectful in the eyes of the audience and it made for an interesting point in the story I, I'm only with you in the sense that, as apparently his brother, Chadwick Boseman's brother, has been out going recasting. Chadwick would not want to do the role to die with mm. him. Um, but I guess, like, I don't know who would have wanted to do mm. that. Um, that would have been a hell of a hell of a um, thing to do, take over from someone who becomes so beloved so quickly mm. as mm. Chadwick Boseman and gone out with such class. Um, overall, we should, we should go before we go over all impressions. Let's see if it was when we said that we're kind of uh, for protect their home for intervening work, work powers. Those intervening powers are come from under the sea in the form of Namor mm-hmm. and his undersea army who are disturbed by um, a surface world people searching underwater for vibranium. Mm-hmm. See that as a threat to their underwater kingdom, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, and they blame Wakanda for mm-hmm. that. Yes. They blame Wakanda for, for driving, for, for causing his problem and uh, end up confronting Wakanda and trying to get them to uh, kill the scientist who had developed an underwater uh, vibranium sensor. Mm. It turns out that that scientist is the 19-year-old girl, Riri, played by Dominique Fawn. The Wakandans being the people they are, like, we're not killing her. Can we come to a uh, peaceful resolution? And Namor's like, how about yeah, nah, mate. <laughs> Namor, as I mentioned, is played by uh, Tenoch Huerta. Mm-hmm. Um, in Namor, for those who are uninitiated, and even I know this, 
is Namor is like old school Marvel OG was in Marvel Comics issue one. He's been around since the thirties. Yeah. Um, is also the first official mutant in the MCU. He did mention the word mutant, and I caught that. Mm-hmm. Um, he is traditionally the king of the underworld realm of Atlantis, mm-hmm. which they have chosen not to use here. I would imagine to avoid confusion with um, Aquaman, yeah. despite the fact that more predates Aquaman. Yep. Uh, and instead, the, he is um, portrayed as being of uh, Mayan heritage. Mm-hmm. They are Mayan people, and they rule this underworld um, realm. It has its own name, which escapes me right uh, now. But um, has a... yeah, uh, I'll look into it. <laughs> Forget the name, but it's not Atlantis. It has a cool yeah. Mayan sounding name. Uh, Namori Tenochtitl. I'm probably pronouncing it poorly. I'll apologize again. Is the first official Latino. Um, actor or main latino character in the mcu mm. um so that's a, a a nod for representation yet again i've read some interesting stuff over the last couple of days about people who found that quite pleasing for the what do you want to call them latino latina latinx community and especially in uh, north and central and south america um the film Talacan. is very Talacan. Talacan, which is a cool mm. name. Um, and obviously the heart-shaped herb has been destroyed in the last mm. film. The Black Panther is gone and Wakanda is looking for trying, what can we do to protect ourselves with our main protector? Mm-hmm. The film's very long. It is two hours, 41 minutes. Yeah. What did you make of it overall? I thought it was fine, but I, I think um, the main story and the main point of this movie was lost in a a similar kind of way to what happened with uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, where they were trying to set up and tie off so many other things that it felt kind of cluttered and muddled. Like the fact that they bring in, they, they had to introduce a new Black Panther. That's always going to be a big thing. The fact that they were so desperate to get Namor into the, the MCU. It was an interesting choice. Um, but pairing that with bringing in a new Black Panther, pairing that with introducing Ironheart, uh, Riri's character, um, and doing so much more with Julie Louise Dreyfus' character to set all of that stuff up, which is clearly going to be um, important in the Thunderbolts series or movie, whichever one they're trying to do with that now. It just felt like they were trying to set up and tie off too many things that the main, the emotional story that this movie should have been given the passing of Chadwick Boseman and the passing of the mantle onto uh, T'Challa's sister that should have been the the primary focus and it just kind of got a little bit lost every time it cut away to um martin freeman's character and julia louise dreyfus character i was like i don't fucking care right now this is this is unnecessary get me back to the emotional story please i think the idea was the story was to be about grief mm. and grieving mm. and uh while while i um it, i didn't actually feel it or pick it up while I was watching it did point out to me afterwards 
you can see the story following sort of an arc of the stages of grief, mm. you know, you know, um, despair, you know, bargaining to acceptance, mm. you know. Um, and they kind of got that okay. I mean, when you point it out, yeah, okay, I can see that. Um, I should note I was always entertained mm. by the story and the film. I was never bored. I never had those moments that I had in uh, in Thor where I was like, and Thor was a lot shorter than this. Yeah. And you're like going, okay, uh, how much longer? All the, all, the, all the Batman sort of going, mm-hmm. like, really? Well, let's fucking hurry up and make this movie. Like, <laughs> um, I didn't have those moments here. No. So on that front, tick, very entertaining mm-hmm. story. Uh, I thought, it, like, I heard some people criticize some of the CGI. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty good. I didn't notice any problems with yeah. it. Um, and while it is much too long, I mean, people must be getting sick of hearing me say mm-hmm. that. Much too long. It's probably needed twenty minutes hacked out of it somewhere along the way. Yeah. Um, and I'm with you. While I enjoyed Martin Freeman mm-hmm. in this, I enjoy him in the MCU. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying. I'm curious about what Julia Louis-Dreyfus is doing here. I'm not sure she really fits yet. I mean, it kind of feels, I mean, like she's an incredible talent, but I kind of feel like she's delivering lines in a half sarcastic kind of amusing way. I'm like, is that deliberate? Like, I don't think I know enough about this character for you to be putting her in the film so much. Like, I've seen her talking to um, Black Panther's, what's her name, um, in uh, the end of Black Widow, and she popped up a... In some of the other series, I think I can't remember where I've seen it pop yeah. up since. But uh, you know, oh, she like, was in um, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. That's yeah. right. You're like, can we can we just tell me a little bit more about what the fuck this person is and why I should care? Yeah. I know you're being mysterious, but like, uh, it's not it wasn't bad. It didn't detract. I was interested in those scenes, but as you sort of said, they weren't as interesting mm. as what was going on with the in Wakanda or in. Talakan or mm-hmm. in the ocean, um, because they never really went anywhere. Like they didn't actually contribute to the story yeah. much at all. But I mean, Martin Freeman was in one scene; he needed to do a thing so they could do the other thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. it, right? We didn't need to see the rest of it. Like, like is, why is this here? I mean, you're right. In the what they're actually probably doing is setting up another show mm-hmm. or another, probably a show, not a movie. <laughs> um, and the introduction of Ironheart was like, oh, okay. It was also rather, once I figured out that's what they were doing, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this isn't actually something story needed. Mm. This is just there. Mm-hmm. So you can do the Ironheart TV show soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also note, I guess, when I stopped and thought about it, the fact that a 19-year-old girl who was a student built a fully functional Iron Man suit mm-hmm. In a garage. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. I mean, you know, I guess I Tony Stark built. He didn't build a fully function. He built a suit of armor with a machine gun in it, right? In a an Iraqi yeah. cave and a rocket uh, feet that ended up falling apart. But was um, far more fully functional. You know, um, and she's not Tony Stark. I mean, I guess. I mean, fair enough. She's probably a very, very, very intelligent, capable. Person, but given that, but, but you know, but she built the by bringing the detective as a school project, yeah. but like, okay, what? 
Um, and it looked kind of, I mean, in fairness, I've seen some people criticize it. And yeah, I gotta pay it. Look, the Ironheart armor looks pretty stupid. Yeah. Um, it's kind of dumb. Uh, and oh. I don't is it a bit too is it a bit too soon to be replacing Robert Downey Jr.? I don't think it's too soon to be replacing Robert Downey Jr. Um, and I don't think that they were stupid to introduce that character in this movie because that was the, the MacGuffin that kind of put these two nations on loggerheads. But they go through a very expensive chase sequence to protect this girl because she can't protect herself. And yet they are more than willing to suit her up and have her in the middle of a fucking war in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it doesn't make logical sense. They could have just easily just had her as an introduction. This is what I did. I'm so fucking good that my school project is now has been co-opted by the US government. Aren't they horrible and cruel and evil to do this? Oh, I need to be saved. Cool. I've got all of these projects. Look, it's not finished yet, whatever. And then they take her there and she's just being protected. And after the point of her nearly drowning, that kind of should have really been the end of her story in this film. They didn't, they should not have introduced her in fully functional flying Gundam suit visage they they should have just gone no nope, she's she's not ready yet that's what her show is for let's let's just stick with that so i it doesn't drag the film no. down too much but again it's also something you've got to then cut yeah. to save us some time yeah. because this film's way too yeah. long um i enjoyed the look of namor's people i don't actually know if we got a net talacans east <laughs> Talakaners, um, Talakinians. I mean, I don't know if you got a name for a crew, Talakonex. I kind of thought they looked cool mm -hmm. as like that. I liked the, the addition of a Mayan angle, mm -hmm. I, I thought that was interesting, but I do find it interesting. That was pointed out to me afterwards by uh, after the, with the movie that the film obviously deals largely with African characters and African-American characters and written and directed by African-Americans. And this, the cast is largely African-American and largely female too, which is actually pretty cool. But is it, shouldn't they really have had somebody who knows something about Mayan culture or Latin American culture come in and do help with that part of it? And as far as I can tell, that didn't happen. Like, I mean, maybe people are getting too PC or whatever. Uh, yeah, we'll take it over there, champ. Um, but, like, you know, if, if if someone made the point to me that said, if, you know, um, Edgar Wright, for example, right, decided to come in and, and write Black Panther and direct it, right, there would be a little bit of fuss yeah. about that and going, why is there, you know, a white writer and director coming in and, and you know, mm -hmm writing a story about African people or African-American characters mm -hmm. that would rightly be criticized as something, well, maybe you should be getting, you know, someone who understands the African-American experience to try and write mm -hmm. that. Um, I was a little, and it, it, I can't argue against it, the fact that Mayan people still exist. Yeah. This is not just a traditional culture of people who are dead now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I'm assuming the language 
his actual Mayan. They speak in the in the text. Apparently, the they they He's... did learn Mayan for it. So yeah, I assume that's what it is. Um, uh, but it's maybe it, it's not a criticism. It's just a isn't it interesting though in this day and age that you know they have decided to represent a, a historically oppressed culture. Mm -hmm. It was almost wiped off the face of the earth by the Spanish. Um, and they don't seem to have anyone involved in the films writing or directing mm. who would have any kind of insight into the nature of that community or understanding of a culture. I yeah. mean, you know, it would be a little bit like um, having, you know, what was it? Remember Super Friends, the cartoon Super Friends? Oh, yeah. And I had the, the, uh, the Native American character who got really big. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what his name was, but um, Chief or something, yeah, something really racist like that. Um, imagine if they made that into a film and they had him kicking around in, you know, their the favorite heads thing and it was written by white people who knew nothing about Native American culture. That'd be well, like, no. Your, your point is incredibly on the nose, especially considering the cultural importance that so many people held for the first Black Panther movie. It's like, okay, yep, cool. You, you did fantastic on that first movie. Awesome stuff. You're doing great again for... Um, African American representation on the screen, which is fantastic. Why, why have you dropped the ball here? <laughs> you you know how important it is. <laughs> just 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 to 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 people's cultures. What so? Where 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 is someone kind of? Why isn't Kevin Feige saying, "Yeah, we wanted, um, we've kind of changed Namor's history and lineage from the comics. He's now got that Mayan influence to him. Um, we've actually got um, legitimate um, Mayan heritage actors and performers coming in to be the characters of Atuma, Namora, things like that." They, they there was none of that press that. And, and and I put my hand up. If there's someone involved in this picture who did that, yeah. then. Happy to say fantastic, great mm -hmm. work, Disney, but I can't find that they did. Yeah. They're not credited as a writer. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the trivia, which obviously is not exactly a primary yes. source, but I can't find any evidence that anybody involved in the picture mm -hmm. was Latin American, Central American, Mexican, Mayan, or anything of that nature, apart from obviously the actors. Mm -hmm. And so, but I don't know it's their job as an actor. I mean, like, I don't know uh, anything about uh, Tenor Cueta, apart from the fact he couldn't swim. Um, you know, and it's probably not cool to sort of go, well, the actors are in Latin American, so it's fine. Mm, mm. Um, anyway, I've read some articles that said they were totally cool. And I mean, I read one interesting article in the Washington Post today by a person who's half Puerto Rican, half African American, mm. who was like, it's great to see a, a black Central American character in the, in the, um, in the MCU. So, um, yeah, he was uh, in, in the idea that being in, in Latin American uh, media is still important to be very light skinned. Mm. So, having someone darker skinned in the MCU was seen as a great victory and a really, really made MCU really feel seen. I am in way over my head here with this racial stuff being as white as sour cream. <laughs> Look at, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I just thought it was an interesting observation. Yeah. For the most part, I actually really enjoy, like I said earlier, I really enjoyed the fact that, like, uh, yet again, we have um, Marvel creating kick-ass female superheroes mm -hmm. without needing a song and dance routine to do "I'm Just a Girl" to make me re, re you know, remind me <laughs> that she's a kick-ass woman. Unlike Captain Marvel, 
um, or what they did in Wonder Woman 84, where they had to make every man in the film a complete misogynist prick, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, in one of the most like, comically horrible characters. And I'm like, okay, we get it. Men are pricks. I'll pay that. There are a lot of dudes out there who are fuckwits, but like, they didn't need to do that in this picture, right? They're just out there kicking ass, taking names. Akoya, fucking badass. I think Akoya uh, um, pretty much steals the movie, frankly. Uh, and Nakia, I mean, Lapita Nyong'o is arguably maybe, I mean, this is maybe, she, she's a fantastic actor. Mm. She might be one of the best actors kicking around in, in Hollywood right now, I think. If you've seen, if you haven't seen Us, see Us. That's a fucking great movie. She's so good in that. Mm. And she's different. And she's a very different role here. Mm-hmm. Um, quite aside from being an absolutely stunning woman, yeah. um, she she's fucking great in this film mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and for, for I think the standout acting role in this scene is Ramonda, played by Angela Bassett, who I really hope gets an Academy Award nom for this. Genuinely emotional work that just sings and does everything that it needs to do she knows exactly how to play the worried mother the grieving mother the kind of flustered leader the the rage and fury of having so much taken from her when it was not right or fair or anyone's fault beyond a mysterious illness that takes t'challa um the machinations of some other fucking nation that's just fucking popped out of nowhere and taken the daughter everything going wrong and the particularly holy shit the scene between her and okoye where okoye is basically lays prostrate and just kind of like yeah i fucked up i need to go and fix this the emotion between those two and the scene was just stunning it's, it's some of the best we've seen, mm-hmm. I think, in Marvel. Mm-hmm. So some of the acting in this film is outstanding. You'll note I've left out one person here, and I found Letitia Wright in this film unconvincing. Yeah. Personally. Uh, I know she had to kind of inherit the role as Black Panther because who else was there? If mm-hmm. if Killmonger was still alive, they might have found a way for him to do it because, God, he was good. And in the five, in the five-minute cameo he has in this film – Michael B. Jordan just reminds you again how fucking cool mm-hmm. uh, Killmonger was as a villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I, one thing I find it hard to detach here is that the teacher Wright had some hassles with Andy Vax stuff mm-hmm. while the film was, and there was some rumors at least that, yeah. that she was going around spreading Andy Vax shit around the set. And other people said that's not true, mm. but she did go around spent sharing, um, sharing Andy Vax shit on Twitter. Mm. So I find that very hard to detach that about the actress from the performance. Also, she's, I don't want to, I don't want to body shame at all, but she is tiny. She is. She feels thin. Like, uh, and I guess when you're a superhero in a super suit, that's fine. But other than that, I, I don't know. It's just, she looks so small against everybody else. And mm. that was, and maybe that's really great if you're a small person who really thin, you know, thin as a rake yourself. Or maybe it mate feels good to see someone on the screen doing that. I don't know. I just, don't think that she's it for me when it comes to, I, the problem with with her was she was a light and a joy in doses throughout the first movie she was just entertaining enjoyable and maybe it's because of what she was told to do and what journey she was expected to take shuri on throughout this movie that she wasn't able to get that 
but to me it almost felt like um kind of like what they did with Korg from Thor Ragnarok to Love and Thunder where he was a bit part that was a nice little highlight a nice little spot and then suddenly he's like oh yeah we're gonna hang a big portion of the movie around your neck as well it's not a not well enough established character to actually pull that off or potentially not a good enough actor to bring that round because I think both. Yeah. I don't think she, she's not the actor to hang your film on, mm. and it's not the a character to bring the, hang the film on. And can you put the spoiler? Yes, alert up just in case anybody's listening and they haven't seen it yet. Well, I'm going to quickly mention the. There's one mid credit scene, uh, and I and I wanted to quickly get your thoughts yep. on it. Um, uh, the so you've your spoilers are up. You're done yep. if you if you, you can't blame us if we spoil the film. Mm -hmm. So in the mid credit scene. Mm -hmm. Um, we find um, we find that uh, that uh, sorry, uh, Nakia, Nick, Nick, Nakia is back in Haiti, mm -hmm. uh, and Shuri catches up with her, and she finds out that uh, Nakia had actually I couldn't even remember who Nakia was. I really had to go back and watch Black Panther before seeing is, but she had a son with T'Challa, mm -hmm. but no secret son that nobody knew. But apparently the queen mm -hmm. uh, and got to meet, but no one mentioned uh, the secret son with T'Challa, uh, and she gets to meet T'Challa's son and Nakia's son, and he says, "Oh, I'm actually Prince, you know, Prince T'Challa of the next, you know, T'Challa, so son of King T'Challa, blah blah blah." So the insinuation being that the studio also don't think Shuri is the person to hang the uh, the the Black Panther. Uh, series around her neck, uh, and that Letitia Wright's not the person yeah. to to base the, to be their big star, and that this kid will be the new Black Panther. Mm. Just age him up at some point, mm. move twenty years to the future, and he'll be it uh, with a new actor. Mm. So we're not really recasting T'Challa. Mm. It's T'Challa's son. Mm. It's different. Mm. I thought I've heard some, I saw Kevin Smith crying about it. I'm like, oh. Kevin Smith cries about everything. Everything I love, Kev, but oh my god, because I thought it was I thought it was pathetic. I thought it was slightly touching, but mostly kind of cheap. It did. I don't feel like it earned it. It it felt like a future proofing action rather than genuine narrative storytelling device. Um, you know, after the first Black Panther movie came out and made so much money and got so much critical acclaim, they were Marvel were very quick to make sure they got Ryan Coogler and Chadwick Boseman signed off for two more movies, and they were going to do a, a big story arc for T'Challa because in the first one, that's when he becomes the king. In the second one, it would have been it was supposed to have been him acclimatizing to being king of his nation. Obviously, that all changed. So. We don't know what's going to happen. There may very well not be a Black Panther 3. It, or if it is, it's not for a number of years. And we could very easily just have another scenario after the Kang Dynasty, where the next time we're in the MCU, it's another 10 years down the line. And yes, we see the rise of Black Panther. Black Panther 3 reborn or whatever they want to fucking do with it. I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't that one. It's made $350 million globally mm. and it hasn't been out a week yet. So 
it's well on its way to making a fair bit of coin. Mm. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see another one. I just felt it was, like you said, future-proofing. I'm like, we're not really sure about Letitia Wright. She's an anti-vaxxer. Mm. She's not really a big movie star. Mm. Uh, maybe we can't make this you know, franchise, her franchise, mm. moving forward, and we need an escape hatch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt cheap's the word. It felt mm. cheap and tacked on. The the other thing that I felt um, watching this movie, I felt it for in the first one where we got those tiny, 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 like two-minute scenes walking through the streets of Wakanda and the uh, the Dora Milaje. I really would love if if they're gonna make a fucking TV show about every fucking part of the MC goddamn you, I would love to see um sort of like Dormalage tales or something like that, where you actually get to see and experience this this the city of Wakanda. What is what life is like there? Is there is there criminality there? Because we see this very, very utopian like lifestyle of Wakanda is like no show me the CD side I want to see the CD side and I want to see these kick-ass fucking warrior women just owning fools in the goddamn street please that would be fucking cool so maybe a reality TV show like so you want to be Dora Milaje it's like tough enough for you have a WWE <laughs> but in Wakanda stop putting this shit out there I mean I it, it would be cool to see. I would like to see that. What did you make of Namor's portrayal of what we talked about earlier? Overall, I think it was fine. But the... Um, it does have the problem. And, and it's in many ways, it's kind of the problem with most Batman villains of, yeah, but it's not the Joker. And we've got, yeah... But it's not Killmonger. Because Killmonger was so brilliantly portrayed, not only by a great performance by Michael B. Jordan, but in the story, the fact that to this day, people will still go, mm, you know, he had a lot of fucking good points. Namor treading similar, very similar ground for a lot of it, justifiable anger towards the, the people on the land for what, what happened to his people. But they don't really put too much of a new spin on it. And the the fact that this movie does try and tell the stages of grief and does try and make it that emotional story, it just doesn't quite sync up on an emotional level to the point where you have that same level of debate as what you did with Killmonger. And just the character of Namor seemed ridiculously overpowered. And he's got tiny little wings on his feet, but he was able to move fucking fast. And so, like, I don't understand, like, he had the, 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 the vibranium kind of jewelry and things like that, but he was being shot at, but it was just bouncing off. Why weren't people just shooting for, you know, the center mass? Would it still have bounced off? I, I don't I don't know. There was a lot of questions and a lot of half-baked ideas that did it, just... it, it almost part of the problem I think for me was the fact that it felt like a lot of his story arc around him felt very similar to Aquaman. Like, oh there's people on the surface <laughs> causing problems down here and we're gonna go after him, and you're like, that's Aquaman. Yeah. Um yeah. 
Uh, I know there's comparisons are hard not to make, but you've chosen a slightly different motivation. Also, their plot to kill to get rid of him is like, oh, he's really too strong. We have to dry him out, and they stick him in a spaceship with heaters in it. Which I mean, which I mean, was, I mean, the obvious solution was was it came evident to me the moment they said we have to dry him out. What they really should have done was got an industrial sized bag of rice and just stuck him in there. That would have dried him out in absolutely no time at all. That works on a phone of mine. Uh, in, in, a, in a bag of rice. I'm like, a bag of rice, he's fucked. It's it. All you need to get rid of Namor is a bag of rice and a heater and he's cooked. Um, <laughs> but no, we have to have a spaceship of heaters. Um, and I'm sorry, but that, well, that, Shitty is like one of the smartest people on the planet. And she's got this AI that seems to be pretty damn intelligent. And there's this new Ironheart who's so intelligent she was able to work out basically how to be Iron Man at the age of 19 with no real guidance from the sounds of it because there's one throwaway line where he says, oh, he, my uncle gave me the tools and I just have to work it out. It's like, okay, cool. Nice to be gifted. Um, none of them from any of their previous encounters with Namor thought... We should get his fucking weapon away from him. Would have been an obvious choice, but yeah. <laughs> I, overall, I'm going to say I thought it was pretty good. It was good enough. I mean, I've seen some people really shitting on it online, and I'm like, it's not that no, bad. It's... I'm not sure it's as good as the last one. I'm not sure it's their best work, mm -hmm. but I certainly found it entertaining enough. Overall, it does what it is trying to do. Um I, I do think that it suffers from the too many plates spinning at once thing. Um, hence one of the reasons why it's too fucking long. But overall, it doesn't fuck anything up. It doesn't do anything bad. It's just like, okay, you, you spent more time on these ancillary story elements that are for something that's completely unrelated to this movie when you should have been telling me a more emotional story here and you have the fucking talent on screen with Angela Bassett to fucking deliver because in every scene that she's in, she fucking delivers. You, you made a bad call for that. I understand why you did it for the grand picture of the, the massive plan of MCU phase five, because apparently this is the end of phase four now. <sighs> okay. It, it, but it's not bad. It just tries to do something. I think it's time for a sponsor break. I think you're right, sir. I think you're right. People have been waiting for it. They're waiting for it. They're like, hey, well after the time for our sponsor break. So our sponsor this week, if you're already uh, good people, is video stores. The video store industry, obviously one of Australia's most booming entertainment industries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Go, gentlemen. When you're too tensed, it's common sense to relax. You're in your prime, so now's the time to relax. The day's at an end, so grab a friend and relax. Relax, 
rustling up some zooted up egg sucking gutter trash. Make a better choice. Writing's advice. Use it. It's on every video. Imagine the perfect video store. Have a great selection, right? Right! Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video! ...is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Blockbuster Video! It's the 4th of July. at Video Easy with this month's outrageous movie guarantee, American Pie, starring Jason Biggs. Relax, relax, relax and move. What on earth are you doing? Getting ready for the Christmas sale. So, how are our customers going to know which movie's which? Unwrap them. At Video Easy, get great gift ideas like Hulk or Billy Madison starring Adam Sandler. New on DVD at unbelievable prices. Wow. It's just like Christmas. Want great movie deals this Christmas? Easy! Footage sourced from the Australian Television Archive. Seeing that little clip of Kindergarten Cop reminds me of one other problem that I had. <laughs> and it wasn't really with the movie, but just one of the characters. I was unpacking stuff at work, unpacking some pops. And there was a pop for Atuma. And I can't read that without going, it's not Atuma. <laughs> <laughs> Which character was that? Um, that was the big warrior dude. Oh, okay. yeah. He was called. They got pops of them already. Jesus Christ! Oh, yeah, they were they were out before the movie was. <sighs> um, you want to talk about doing a uh, that's that that sponsors some theme this week. So what we're going to talk about mm -hmm. next? We picked it. I didn't even have to tell him. He just put the thing up and he yeah, knew. I knew. I knew. The brains and the beauty of this show, ladies and gentlemen. Blockbuster, ladies and gentlemen, on Netflix. Yes. 
Uh, the comedy set in the last blockbuster video in America explores what and who makes a small business succeed. The major force behind this is Randall Park. We talked about him last week. He was in Always Be My Maybe. He's uh, in the MCU as Jimmy Woo. He was in an interview, fresher for both. Mm. He's a pretty well known face mm. now. And this is really his his, it's yeah, his, his baby, yeah. I think. I, I don't think there's anybody, it's a relative, some other name faces in here, Micah. Seeing him in stuff, but I'm not sure where. There's really no other big names. Well, there, Melissa Fumero, she um, is certainly most famous for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. See, I've never watched that. So I'm going to say take that back. And if people, Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans are going to be out for my net yes, after that. Because uh, Nine-Nine. It's, uh, apparently, apparently it's a it's a show that people watch on television watch or a streaming show. service. Um, and the involvement of Andy Sandberg just goes, a no for me. Uh, <laughs> we did enjoy Palm Springs. Thank you very much. Ah, true, true. So Timmy Yoon is an analog dreamer living in the 5G world. Mm -hmm. After he finds out he's operating a very last blockbuster video in America, Timmy and his staff employees, including his longtime crush Eliza, fight to stay relevant. The only way to succeed is to remind their community that they provide something that big corporations can't, the human connection. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty much it's set in the blockbuster video store in the current day mm -hmm. uh, or thereabouts. Um, and uh, we open with something that's uh, uh, sort of Randall Park's uh, Timmy being told that seven blockbusters are closed and his is now the last and that blockbuster corporate is now going away. Mm -hmm. um, that poses a number of problems. Uh, they were paying half his rent to his landlord, played by J.B. Smooth. What a great mm -hmm, name. Mm -hmm. Who is Percy. Uh, and uh, Percy runs a party store uh, next door um, and he's got to figure out how to pay rent. As you can imagine, uh, uh, there'll be quite a bit of support for the store provided by their corporate office as well. And now we'll, it has to be handled by mm -hmm. Timmy and Go as well. Um, it's a, this is a very light and fluffy workplace comedy. Yes, it is. My instant reaction to the first episode was, why the fuck would anybody have that many employees working at once inside a blockbuster video store at any point in the last 25 years? Yep. I mean, maybe in the early 90s you needed a lot of staff, but not really. What do you need, like, a couple people in the register and mm -hmm. a couple people putting tapes back? That's about it. But, like, there are, we meet the we meet the crew. There's Eliza, who is kind of like the assistant manager kind of character, and as we know, Timmy's crunch. Mm -hmm. Olga Mendez is Connie. Tyler Alvarez is Carlos. Madeline Arf is Hannah. And Kamaya Fairburn's Kayla, who is Percy's daughter, who... Uh, Timmy uh, employees uh, as a favor. Mm. Uh, and I thought a lot of people there always all at work at once. Because it's a situational comedy, Travis. That's how these things work. You didn't just always see random, just a full episode of just Joey and Chandler sitting at the cafe with none of the others. That would have been actually a little bit more interesting than most of the shit they <laughs> yeah, made in that television show. It also would have taken a modicum of creativity and originality from the people who create that trash. Mm -hmm. um, not a fan yeah. of friends, sorry. But yes, it was the first thing I thought of was like, you're running a small business that's failing. Why do you have all of your staff on all the time? Mm -hmm. yeah, you're not um, the casual they employment. It can't be, especially in the United States. Like, they, they get paid nothing and you can be fired for no reason. You can get like one hour shifts and stuff. You can't do that here. But, um, uh, anyway, that was just obvious to me. Um, 
I find it appealing. I think this is a very Gen X uh, target comedy because we were the generation who grew up with the ubiquity of video stores. Did you have Blockbuster in the we UK? Did. Yes, we did. But um, not near me. <laughs> it's too rural for Blockbuster. But we had our own. Not in the Melford, unfortunately. No, no, no. We, it, come on. It was it was a long time before we got our very own ATM in the village. Did you have a video store of some description? Uh, not in Melford, no. Um, my house was the video store, effectively, because we had <laughs> hundreds of movies that were recorded on VHS off of the TV. Uh, no, you had to drive three miles um, to go to the nearest um, uh, video store it was not a blockbuster um and every time you went there it was already they they never had enough copies to satisfy demand for anything <laughs> i i know when i was a kid we used to go oh, i can see how old i am mm. i can remember very young i would have been i can remember the only place you could rent videotapes initially in australia or at least in our part of australia at least was the chemist the chemist mm. had a rack one of those spinny racks of like tapes, yeah. you know, one of one of each, you know, it'll be like half, like a, I don't know, maybe a, a dozen tapes or something on a rack, and that was it. That was before dedicated video stores. And mm -hmm. when we did get video stores, um, I remember Dad would take me to one, and you know, I'd find myself in a corner, find a movie, you know, um, I wanted to watch. Dad, look, you can't rent that. I get really upset about why I couldn't rent it, and I didn't understand. That I was trying to rent a beta tape, <laughs> um, and we had a VHS player. And I didn't. Why can we do this matter? I don't care. It's a beta tape. I want to watch it. You know, like um, luckily when we had, you know, you had a choice, beta or VHS. Um, but uh, I was a, I was pretty well known at my local mm -hmm. video store, uh, our local Video Easy. You saw their commercial earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, I was a very familiar face down there. Um, uh, it was always that dream before when I end up working at a video store. I mean, kind of a Tyler Alvarez, Carlos character who kind of wants to be Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. wants to be a filmmaker. There was always at least one wannabe filmmaker in every video store, I think. Yep, yep. And I think not only that, but it does um, kind of just ring to the appeal of Clerks, the first Clerks, you know. Um, what was it? it but... <sighs> I don't know if it entirely works, is the thing. No, I kind of... We've, how many episodes have you watched? I have watched... Uh, six. Five. Okay. No, six. Five, yeah. I thought the first episode was pretty weak. The pilot episode was pretty weak, and I found myself going, well, this is actually very disappointing. Mm. I thought it picked up a little bit in after mm. that. Uh, do you, was that your experience as well? Yes. It's the the characters are generally fine. Um, it seems to be taking longer than it should to kind of, for for the actors to really find their characters. Like so, like good quality sitcoms, you need to nail the characters. It's because it's the characters rather than the situations that they get in that. Is going to drive you forwards. Um, it's why Seinfeld is so highly regarded because we love those characters and the situations were just the inciting incident for good character work. And that's what a good quality sitcom should be. These guys are still kind of very vanilla. It's almost too light. Mm. It's almost like they thought, you know what would be a cool idea for a show? Mm. Would be a workplace comedy set in the last blockbuster in America. And 
I was heard that idea. I'm like, I'm on board with that. That sounds like a cool idea mm. for a show. It sounds fun. Mm. But then they kind of got down the ride and they've gone, oh, fuck. So um, do you have any ideas? Mm. Because I got nothing. It's almost like they forgot to put the jokes in. Yeah. Um, and, the jokes- and the characters are almost too ridiculous. The characters are, I, I wonder that maybe, maybe it would have worked better as like an Office-esque style comedy where like a, the faux documentary are a little bit more of a straight bat as opposed to the wacky, almost network style, um, you know, uh, sitcom. I, I feel like it needs to go one way or the other, go that kind of Leslie Nielsen, straight faced, absurdist kind of comedy or the borderline slapstick comedy because right now a lot of the the scenarios they're resting a lot on social social labels like there's um an episode where one of the characters they're trying to pin down what their type is their preferred type of person to date is and the conversation is like okay this is mildly interesting comment on social normities of gender and things like that but it's not actually funny is no it's not a lot of laughs yeah for someone as talented as randall park Mm. and capable of being charming and funny at the same Mm. time he hasn't been given a lot to work with here yeah uh and it's disappointing and um it seemed to have a lot of potential, mm. um, but it doesn't seem to have quite stuck the landing here. I must say, um, yeah. I was. It's a bit piss weak, frankly. It's just a bit too light, a bit too fluffy. Um, writers include well, the, the main Vanessa Ramos. Yeah, Vanessa Ramos is the creator. She's credited as the creator. She was. Um, she was a writer on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, on Keenan, uh, Superstore. So she's definitely... Have you seen much of Superstore? No, because it's it, it just, for, for some some reason, it's it the, um, what's, his, what's his fucking name? The, the guy who did the the, um, the office, the, the original office. Oh, Gervais. Gervais. Yeah, it's got the Gervais effect. I see... I see for some reason, I don't want to be involved in that. <laughs> I would recommend giving that a look. Okay, it's like it's like blockbuster, mm-hmm. but they've actually kind of got something to say. Okay, um, they've got some jokes in there. They've got they're actually got they're actually it's whereas I think maybe blockbuster is leaning a little bit harder on on, on nostalgia. Mm. Do you remember blockbusters? You remember going to the video store on a Friday night? Wasn't that fun? Um, as kind of its its charm, mm. whereas Superstore doesn't have that. It's actually a satire. Yeah. Um, give it a couple of episodes. If you don't like it, I guess you don't like it. Mm. But it, I think if I found myself, I wasn't a massive fan of Superstore, mm. but watching this, it made me want to maybe miss the, mm. I'm going to say edge of Superstore, and Superstore doesn't have much of an edge. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> So, you know, um, Superstore at least has, it's actually satirizing a very mm. obvious target in the Walmarts, Best Buy, sort of, you know, Kmarts of a world um, of United, of US sort of retail. Whereas mm. Blockbuster isn't a satire, it's a nostalgic 
workplace sitcom. It's it's a child at a time, a bit like Blockbuster was. Mm. But I do love the irony. It's on Netflix. Uh, for those who don't know the story, mm. Blockbuster had the opportunity. Sorry, Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix for like twenty million dollars yeah. or something like that in the early two thousands. They're like, nah. What do we want this thing for? <laughs> and I mean, obviously, you know, Netflix probably wouldn't have gone on to become what they would have become. They've become if um, if Blockbuster owned them, because Blockbuster almost certainly would have, you know, driven them into the ground. <laughs> because like, well, they were already making lots of money renting videos from physical stores. Why would you choose to then undercut that by creating a, a video rental mail service or a streaming service? Like it's. But anyway, it's a funny story. It's one of those things where they, they actually, I don't know, Netflix owned, someone came in and bought all the, the rights to all the IP in it, the Blockbuster brand yeah. and stuff like that. But um, it's a bit disappointing, I think, overall. Yeah. I'm. It's inoffensive, but disappointing. Yeah, I'm going to keep on going through and just finish the season. But, and I hope that it gets better. But at the same time, it's like, hmm. If you get a second season, you're really going to have to up the ante because 10 episodes or however long the first season is, is a long-ass time to establish characters. You, you know what? Um, It's real. There's charm. It's vanishes. They're 22-minute episodes kind of thing. Mm. Like they're short. Yeah. They're there and they're gone. And I find that becoming an increasingly rare commodity these days. We try and find something... I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed, but I don't want to watch an hour long something. I want something quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably what Blockbuster is there for. It's something to yeah. go on in the background exactly. before you decide to go to bed. Yeah, this is, this is kind of perfect for that. It's not going to be offensive to anyone. It's going to make maybe make you go, huh, yeah. Or sort of like, oh, yeah, I remember sort of like having conversations like that. And... Okay, what, what's next? <laughs> That's uh, that's blockbuster. Have you um, what else have you watched this week? Anything of note? Yes, actually. Are you much of a Rocky Balboa fan? Mm, I, well, I mean, the original films are good, mm-hmm. but I haven't bothered going to see any of the more recent mm, ones because um, obviously um, uh, Creed came out uh, quite a few years ago at this point, and it was a another big introduction for Michael B. Jordan and the start of a new franchise for him. I enjoyed it. Um, And so I decided to check out Creed 2. And this one is kind of the one that everyone was expecting it to be um, because we get... Ivan Drago, right? Ivan Drago and his son, whose name I can't remember, but son of Drago just sounds better than any any other name. Um, and it's it's the, exactly the the kind of story that you expect, but it does show a modicum of growing with the times, I suppose, because obviously when Apollo Creed fought Ivan Drago in the original movies, that ended in tragedy with Apollo Creed dying. And Adonis Creed is Apollo Creed's son, all grown up, now boxer, being trained by Rocky Balboa. And at the start of the movie, he just gets 
he just wins for the first time the world heavyweight belt. And everyone asks who's who's going to be his um, first defense. And out of the blue comes the rough, the brutal, the pure muscle monster that is Son of Drago. And as is tradition for any movie involving Rocky Balboa, a sleazy guy in a suit wanting to make money, hashtag terrible promoters, comes in with the idea of, yes, let's get this boy against him, you know, son of the killer versus son of the victim. Let's do this. Everyone wants to see it. And so, like, of course, yeah, that, that makes actually great. <laughs> that, that's a great promotion right there. Um, and they are immediately put to loggerheads and... Rocky, uh, as as Adonis trailer, just says, yep, you don't want to take this fight. You don't need to take this fight. Why do you want to take this fight? There's, If you're going to take this fight, I'm leaving. And um, in this story, the fight gets called. And, well, it doesn't get called. Um, Son of Drago um, actually um, does an illegal move he hits adonis when he's already down which disqualifies him from the fight in spite of him very clearly having been about to win the belt so through disqualification adonis does not lose his belt and it he is beaten he has got cracked ribs um bruised kidneys all the all sorts of stuff and he's going through a massive emotional turmoil of losing this fight losing this fight to the son of the killer of his father, as well as in his mind, in his rage, in his frustration, thinks that Rocky has abandoned him. His wife, uh, played by Tessa Thompson, is um, uh, uh, they find out very quickly that um, she's pregnant, and they're both worried that um, Tessa Thompson's character is, um, is partially deaf. They're worried that it's going to be passed on to the baby. So there is that emotional human side away from the ring. This is actually a good film. This is actually a good film. It is a lot to do with the performances. Michael B. Jordan is a solid actor. Tessa Thompson is a solid actor. Um, they keep um, Dolph Longridge uh, and Son of Drago to be the very quiet... I will break you kind of thing. Um, and it works for them. The guy who plays Son of Drago, we've most recently seen him as Razor Fist in The Legend of Shang-Chi. Um, and Rocky is, you know, Sylvester Stallone is Rocky. And he's like, hey, you know, you don't have to fight this guy. You know? Why are you fighting him, eh? Um, and but he's showing that kind of age and the unusual wisdom that is Balboa and that simplicity of his mind in many regards. Um, it's directed by someone whose work I've not heard of at all. Um, Creed 2, hang on, let me pull it up. It's uh, Stephen Capel Jr. Yeah, so I've not heard that name before. Um, looking at his uh, thing right now, don't know any other work that he's done, but he um, 
there's some trivia about the movie him saying that he there were certain elements of the boxing fights that he wanted to purposefully slow down to evoke the uh the brutality of the fights and the fight sequences are good they are shot overall in a very good way that you know when they're swinging and missing so that they're not actually beating the shit out of each other you don't really see it and their actors are doing well to to roll with the punches and the 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 performances look good in the ring so the fights look visceral michael b jordan looks entirely convincing as the son of apollo creed and a a fighter um Hang on. I'm going to actually uh, find his name. Uh, Victor Drago. There we go. Uh, Florian Monta Montano. Man Man Mantino. Mantino. Um, he is just muscle. And, and you kind of look at him and go, yeah, you step in the ring with that guy, you're going to die. <laughs> um, it's... I know it's even um, Bridget Nielsen is in here as well. Yes. To playing uh, Drago's wife again. Yes, and um, that's the other kind of well handled element of the story is we do see and uh, are told elements of what happened to Ivan Drago after he lost to Rocky, and his life went fucking shit. Everyone fucking left him. His country abandoned him and just left him to rot. And his wife left him, and he was just there, just having to raise this child all on his own fueled with nothing but vitriol and hate for the guy that beat him and the fact that everyone left and he's just he's a guy who's obsessed with chasing after that glory and that um connection i think in the end um there's a there's a good cut there's a really actually a good scene where they're having this sit down dinner and it's like all of the so like head members of the of some kind of council or family or something, and Bridget Nielsen is there. So seems to be the first time that her and Ivan have been in the same room, and Victor just gets up and walks away, and uh, Ivan chases after him. So like, we need these people, and Victor's like, no, we fucking don't. These are all the people that left you. We've done this. We can do this without them. Um, and it's a really nice counterpoint to how the character of drago changes from the very first time we see him where he's this testosterone muscle god that breaks people to a broken father determined to use his son to to get revenge effectively to actually learning to be a good dad and it's a good honest story and it's somewhat mirrored in the journey that um a Adonis goes on as well. So it works on a lot of levels. It's not too long. It is two hours, 10 minutes. So it's maybe a time. Have you seen the first Creed? I did, yes. And I enjoyed it overall. Um, do, you, do I need to have seen Creed 1 to see this? No. No, it's been a long time since I saw Creed 1. And I just jumped into it and said, like, okay, yep there um you know he's he's a young young fighter who's going for the thing he's being trained by rocky that's cool that's his mom he's still dealing with like the the fatherly connection and having his um having his girlfriend and like getting married to her and then having a kid you don't need you don't really need anything beforehand unlike a lot of rocky movies where they kind of show the last fight of the the previous movie and things 
there's none of that here. Um, it is already done. It is done well enough that they have got Creed three. Michael B. Jordan. I see here, and this one is written. This has been directed by Michael B. Jordan yeah. and has been written by Ryan Coogler, mm-hmm. the man who wrote and mm-hmm. directed um, uh, Black Panther and Black Panther Two, and his brother Keenan Coogler. Mm-hmm. And we have Kang himself, yes. Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors coming in, and the trailer um, recently, I think two weeks ago now, came out, and holy shit, they! I think they're trying to do a little bit of the Clubber Lang, Mr. T movie. Um, and Jonathan Majors looks fucking jacked and dangerous. And if they are going to try and do like Star Wars, a new hope slash, um, uh, what was it? What was the other one called? A new hope version two. Oh, uh, Force that's the one. Yeah. They're basically doing that, but for, um, the Drago movie and now, uh, the the Clubber Lang story is like you know what Jonathan Majors is a great actor I really enjoy him uh, Michael B Jordan is solid in this and it looks like they're putting um, an emotional an emotional angle on the story as well so sure show me that story I'm interested yeah uh, I don't know I think I checked out after Balboa oh yeah. Not that it was bad. I think that was pretty decent. Um, it's just like, I don't know. It just seems a little bit forced to keep having these films come out. You know, like <laughs> it's um, it's really very, I mean, the fact that Michael B. Jordan's in it is probably the only temptation for me in the sense of like, he's a great actor, mm-hmm. Michael B. Jordan, mm-hmm. an absolutely fabulous actor. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about Jonathan Majors yet. I thought he was okay in Lovecraft Country and we haven't seen enough of what he's done with Kang yet, mm-hmm. but um. It sounds like if it's written by Ryan Coogler, mm. and that's, I think that's a pretty good advertisement. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Coogler is um, a solid talent. I think he actually um, uh, directed the first Creed movie as well. I think he did, yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that if you like sports movies, if you like boxing, if you like those overall feel-good movies, that's what this is, you know, is in the fight sequences and the training videos and stuff. It's got that kind of eye of the tiger kind of music going and you just kind of, yeah, you get into that a little bit, you know, I mean, it's the perfect, the, these, these are movies that you kind of want to have just list. You put them on your headphones when you go to the gym, because it just amps you up. It's so like, yeah, I could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoyable, enjoyable, gritty, gritty. Yeah. Mm. Have you anything else you'd like to talk about this week? Um, I was going to talk about uh, God of War Ragnarok, but I have not had any chance to actually play any more of it. Um, it is still beautiful. Um, have you had a taste? I've had a taste, and it doesn't pull any punches. So the opening sequence, it's you know this beautiful. Um, uh, sequence where you're seeing Kratos and his son Atreus gathering um, deer that they've hunted, put them on um, on a sleigh, going through this beautiful, so like semi-dead winter forest, and they're being. Um, after a moment, they hear something, and um, they suddenly see uh, a person. I think it's. I can't remember the name of the person, but it's someone from previous uh, uh, game. 
and she is through the through the chase sequence you learn that she's pissed because um you 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 as the, as kratos killed her son in the previous game um but it's like really cool you get to sort of like you have these quick um quick time events where you have to push the buttons to kind of get her off and uh, save um, atreus and things like that and then you're kind of going through and it's just showing off how pretty the game is and it is a stunning game absolutely beautiful it's really really doing wonders and then you get in and then it's all like oh yeah so we've given you a taste of the fast-paced action that you can expect god of war now we're going to hit you in the balls and you spend a good three minutes watching this young boy gently patting a wolf's head as it dies in your lap because it's just old. And it's like, you don't fucking show me that shit. I'm, uh, as soon as that ended, I paused, I went downstairs, and I gave Archimedes a big hug, and it's like, don't you fucking go anywhere, man. <laughs> but it was just beautifully played out. It really elicited emotions and the the fact that it looks so good, the fact that the voice acting is so wonderfully done, it really hits and kind of like okay, this this game is trying to be both the summer and the winter. It it felt good in those action sequences doing that, and that was awesome. But the emotional value in the story already just on a wolf dying, I'm like okay. I think this is going to be something special. Well, that seems to be the indication around the place has been nominated for Game of the Year. Yeah. It's to be that for a week and it's been nominated for Game of the yeah. Year. Um, it's uh, just sort of a broken record. Well, yeah. yeah. God of War, amazing game. Yeah, yeah, yeah Game of the Year, uh, whatever. Honestly, <laughs> the, part of the problem that it creates is the problem that Sony has now, which is they are great with their exclusives, Nintendo are great with their exclusives, but uh, Sony pretty much only make blockbuster exclusives that are very much adult orientated. I get a lot of people coming into the shop asking, oh, which console is best for, for me to get for my son and my daughter? And I'm like, okay, how old are they? So I'm like, well, they're 14. I'm like, okay. Are they playing anything at the moment? Like, no. It's like, well, in that case, the ones that are age appropriate, you want to go for Nintendo got the most options of games that are not going to be violent they're not filled with prostitution or um, any uh sort of like profane language or anything like that if you want to play this as an adult go for playstation they've got fantastic first parties but they are all adult orientated this um the last of us um the uncharted games are PG 13, maybe, but they, they're a bit violent as well. And whilst I respect that, it is creating a very hard model for Sony to follow. Like, as, as a conscientious salesperson, I can't go, oh yeah, buy this console for your nine year old. The amount of parents that come in are like, oh yeah, can I get GTA? It's like, okay. Who's it for? So I'm like, oh, my son's turning nine. So I'm like, mm, this is an 18 rated game. So I'm like, well, what does that mean? What do you mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Have you not I, understand age ratings on movies? I remember saying when I bought um, Red Dead Redemption 2, I remember standing in line and the guy in front of me was buying it for his kid. Mm. 
he was like, he was like eight. And the girl at JB Hi-Fi, to her credit, goes, you know, this is an 18-plus game. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not for him. He said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's for 18-year-olds only. Oh, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And he just hands to keep the game. And you're like, yeah. we, we as gamers had to work out hard. We had to fight mm-hmm. to get an 18-plus rating for games in this country. Mm-hmm. Because they were, that fuckwit in South Australia wouldn't sign off on it for years and years. If you know, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah. and yet now, we finally get one. And parents are just like, oh, I can't be bothered actually using my, engaging my brain and wondering, hmm, ah, 18 plus. Where have I seen that before? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite comment, see- my favorite comment though, is when I explain to people, so like, oh, yes, there's prostitution, there's drugs, there's um, violence, there's profane language in this game. <laughs> About 80% of the time, the parents will go, oh, yeah, my son uh, doesn't do that stuff. Hmm. He says that he doesn't. He does. He's lying. That is the so, delight. Sometimes the game forces you to do this stuff. That is the lie that you choose to accept because you don't actually want to parent. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like it's 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 just lazy, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you're probably our age. Yeah. So you know, younger maybe, probably yeah. very much younger. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, there's no excuse for you not to be up with what these things are, right? It doesn't it's take long to, to just do a Google search. And, but you know, anyway, back to God of War. This is a genuinely impressive game, even just the first hour. That maybe I've hit the hour mark. Maybe um, it's impressive in every way, but it is definitely not for kids. I would say maybe at this point. I would feel confident if it, for like a 15 year old because of the emotional turmoil and just the amount of blood. Um, it's up to you if you want to let your kid play this and if uh, younger than that, but this is going to be an emotional story that is going to have an, it is designed to elicit an effect in you. So Either your child is a sociopath, um, a psychopath, doesn't feel things, or very, 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 very mature for their age and knows how to manage their emotions. If um, you are a parent, mm-hmm. can I recommend mm. a website, Common Sense Media? <laughs> this is recommended to me by another parent. This is interesting. As a parent of my, for our work recommended this. It's actually a really cool website if you are like if 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 you know if I was parenting someone like I don't know anything about being a parent mm. like and like I would have his conversations with this colleague of mine and recommend movies and she'd be like is that cool how old do you recommend that for and you'd be like mm. Mm, I don't know <laughs> I don't know what kids watch these days mm. and anyway Common Sense Media actually does have um, a, a really cool rating system and God of War is on there. Yeah. Uh, and it clearly says 18 plus, but they're, you know, they actually go through and actually break it down. Positive messages, positive role models, diverse representations, ease of play, mm. products and purchases, sex and nudity, language, violence, etc. So if you're a parent and you don't understand what R, 18 plus means on a game, mm-hmm. have a look at Common Sense Media. It's actually a really handy one if you are wondering, if you're, even if you have like a nephew or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
or um, someone like if you're not a parent yourself, um, maybe you might find it useful. Maybe you should recommend it to your parents. That's, that's what I'm actually. Media. Yeah, I'm going to let let everyone at my work know about Common Sense Media because there's some parents that need education. You need to you, you get like a limited number of times you can view reviews and stuff. But anyway, like it's really I found it very helpful, and I'd watch you. Which you, I'd talk to his colleague and I go, "Well, this film's great," and we'd actually look it up and I'd be like, "Huh, yeah, actually, you know, yeah, that that's right, you know, that hardcore sex scene halfway through, you know, <laughs> maybe before the devil knows your daddy isn't great for your five year old." <laughs> um, but really handy, interesting, interesting website, uh, and um, not overly sanctimonious either. So <laughs> it's not heavily heavily influences of Christians or you know. I find it a pretty handy um, little tool um, when I'm dealing with people who have kids and they ask for stuff. Mm. Cool. Good to know. Off topic. Did not expect to be talking about common sense media tonight. <laughs> you, you, you made me talk about God of War. That's not my fault. Now, what have you to, um, what are you talking about? I am going to hold over. I have watched season five of The Crown. Mm -hmm. We're getting a little long in the tooth, so I am going to hold that over till next week. Uh, so we can give it some justice because it's it's ten episodes. Okay. It's you know Netflix flowering at their flagship series, and it probably deserves more than the five minutes we'll get mm. here at the end. This is what we call Morbin time. This time of the show, this is Morbin time. The time okay. for stuff like Morbius, which it doesn't deserve any more than four or five mm -hmm. minutes of mm -hmm. you okay. know coverage. So what so, what's filling our Morbin time right now? I had I I don't know what I've had. I, I actually um. I've had a busy week, so I don't know, but I've actually mm -hmm. scrammed any Morbin level television mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. this week. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I fortunately, um, so I think maybe we give people a slightly shorter show, a show under two hours. Goodness me, we are actually practicing what we preach, ladies and gentlemen. We are cutting things from the show to make it more palatable for you. <laughs> and people will just say, Well, you can cut the whole fucking show. <laughs> Well, you could just not download the show then. Why don't you just do that? <laughs> well, in that case, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the show. We talked about our chain movie of the week, which is um, the delightfully challenging uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, um, directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, we are going to be following um, on from that with Travis's pick chain uh, link of the link of the chain this week for Birdman. Uh, we talked about Black Panther two, Wakanda Forever, uh, Blockbuster. I talked about Creed two, and a little bit more about God of War. And hopefully, I'll actually have a little bit of time to to invest a bit more time into that and have a few more thoughts la later down the line. Um, Anything on your dance card for next week that you think? Oh yeah, that's that's. Uh, give it. Um, are we? We'll do the round. May not actually get to air next week. I am starting a new job next three weeks. Wednesday is my first day of a new job, and if anybody's ever worked a new job before, first days can be mm -hmm. pretty exhausting. Mm -hmm. So um, keep your eye on our socials. Mm -hmm. And we'll let you know what's happening. Um, otherwise, I don't know if the show does go next week. It'll be whatever shit I discover this week to watch. You know, um, you know, you just stumble across things occasionally. And go, oh, I made another one of those. <laughs> Jesus, some American Psycho. <laughs> oh, no, don't do that to yourself. Just don't. <laughs> I've done it before. We watched it for the show. Yeah, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> well then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget you can follow us on uh, twitch.tv slash thefrybrain, armchair produce, uh, twitch.tv slash armchair producers on Twitch. Um, Twitter.com slash the fried brain uh, at the fried brain at evil trav, uh, Facebook.com slash fried brain productions or Facebook.com slash armchair producers. Thank you so much. And please reach out to us if you do have any recommendations or suggestions for movies, TV shows, music, or anything else that you think that uh, would make for entertaining content for us. But until next time, thank you very much and good night. Good night. Uh, Props, props, props. Mm.